Please now turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and this morning we are going to read verses 1 and 2 to remind us of the context here, and then we are going to drop down to read verse 7, which will be the um, text for our sermon this morning. Let me clarify that I'm going to read from the New King James Version uh, this morning. Um, as I have noted, if you've been a regular part of this congregation, that the New King James uh, uh, more accurately translates um, the text here and helps us and aids us in the understanding, therefore. And so, uh, some have asked if that indeed uh, is the translation from which I'm reading in Hebrews 11. It is. Um, and so, hopefully, that does not uh, confuse uh, anybody um, by uh, wondering uh, what particular translation is being read here. Hebrews chapter 11, and reading verses, first of all, 1 and 2. Let us hear God's Word. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And then moving down to verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. As we have said a number of times as we've come to this chapter in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, the author characterizes some key aspects of the faith of the Old Testament witnesses. That's what he says in verse 1, and that's why I have read again and again as we've come to each individual section thus far, verses 1 and 2. And in connection with that, God had testified to these Old Testament witnesses of the invisible object of hope. That's what he says in verse 2 of Hebrews 11. And then these witnesses, these Old Testament saints, in turn responded to that testimony of God, that revelation of God, even to things not yet seen with physical eyes. They responded with persevering faith and thus became what we shall see when we get to Hebrews 12 and verse 1, this cloud of witnesses to all who came thereafter, and particularly to us this morning as we hear their testimony. Well, then we come to verse 7 this morning in Hebrews 11, where we find the author of Hebrews gives another condensed account of an Old Testament witness to the reality of the world to come. And of course, that Old Testament witness this morning is Noah. 
We're going to think about three things this morning from our text. First of all, future events. Secondly, deliverance and condemnation. And then thirdly, an heir of righteousness. So, first of all, then, future events. Secondly, deliverance and condemnation. And thirdly and finally, an heir of righteousness. So, first of all, then, future events in verse 7a, the first part of verse 7. First, the author here confirms that the things not seen, which he has mentioned back in verse 1, are not just some abstract philosophical ideas. If you are familiar with the philosophy of Plato, these are not just the eternal ideas which the Greeks thought existed, which could not be seen, of which copies are manifest and visible to our eyes here below. That's not what the author means here. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about the things not seen. But rather, they are future events. They are real. They are historical. They will happen, but they have not yet happened. That's why they are unseen. Noah received divine warning, we are told. God warned him. He received testimony then. That's the word we're using for all of this revelation to these different Old Testament saints, a general word. But what particular testimony did Noah receive? It was a warning, wasn't it, of divine judgment. But what was it about? What was the warning about? Concerning events as yet unseen the author says, Hebrews 11, 7. Now, Noah was not the only one to um, receive testimony and to respond in persevering faith to things yet unseen. Other patriarchs likewise understood and embraced other future events by faith. We'll come to another good example, but for the moment, just to illustrate, Hebrews 11, verse 22 the patriarch Joseph. Remember, Joseph is in Egypt, and uh, though he would die there, though having been raised to great prominence by God and His will and purpose, he would die in Egypt. But he looked forward in faith to the Exodus, though he would see it from afar by faith, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Yet he embraced future events. Fast forward to our own day as Christian believers. We too do not yet see the full consummation of all that God has promised to those who have repented from sin and trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ. We still yet walk a pilgrim way through this world. Yet we do by faith see that great day that is coming, that day of the glorious return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the full consummation of all of the purpose of God, even as the author has already mentioned it back in Hebrews 2 verse 8. 
He says, we've not come to see that in reality of full consummation yet. But what do we see, he says, Hebrews 2 verse 8. We do have the privilege in our time at this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, we do have the privilege of having seen a fuller revelation of it and even the fulfillment thus far of that great promise, even in the coming of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's what the author has said back in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And so faith, persevering faith, whether we think about it in terms of Noah, which is our focus this morning, whether we think about it illustrated as we'll come to Joseph and the Exodus, or whether we think it as we, where we are in time and space of God's redemptive purpose, looking for that last great day of final and consummate fulfillment, faith gives us not physical sight of those things yet, but gives us sight like that of the servant of Elisha, you remember. Remember how Elisha and his servant are seemingly trapped in the city of Dothan. And the servant thinks, well, this is it. We've got out of a few scrapes thus far and escaped uh, the um, army and the king who wants to capture Elisha. But this time, there's seemingly no way out. And you remember what Elisha says to his servant, and he prays, Lord, open his eyes to see that it may be that the armies of men have encircled us, but the armies of the host of the Lord have them surrounded, and they are massively outnumbered, if we could put it very reverently. The armies of the host of the Lord had these Syrians outgunned beyond measure. And so Elisha was praying that his servant would be able to see such. And so that's how the eye of faith can see, that we yet await the full fulfillment of the promise of God and His great salvation. But it's not to be doubted. It's not to be wondering whether this is the case or not. And hence, as we come back to Noah this morning, it was in reverent faith, godly faith, that Noah acted upon the divine testimony, the warning that he received of coming judgment, a temporal judgment in his day and generation. And he responded by building the ark as God commanded him to do, that would save all those who would trust in God's means of salvation. He be responded with what? Persevering faith. Despite what his physical eyes told him, the seeming foolishness of building such a craft miles and miles from any great body of water, despite all the mocking of the unbelieving world around him, he believed the testimony of God, responding with persevering faith, and became thus a witness to us of the great unseen realities. Well, that brings us in the second place to deliverance and condemnation. Deliverance and condemnation, verse 7b, the second part of verse 7. 
as with those that we've looked at earlier in this chapter, Abel, Enoch, along with others that we will see later in the chapter, the author of Hebrews here deduces Noah's faith from the text in the book of Genesis, which, if you read it very carefully, does not explicitly say that he had faith, does not explicitly say that he believed. Now, why can the author of Hebrews therefore deduce that and state that? It was by reverent, godly faith that he did these things. Well, it's because, as we have mentioned before, but we need to say it again so that we keep this in our minds as we go through all of these Old Testament uh, witnesses, it is of the nature of Hebrew historical narrative. The book of Genesis is Hebrew historical narrative. To demonstrate faith, or indeed the very opposite, to demonstrate unbelief by the actions of those who are discussed in that particular text. So, it's not an unusual thing to say they had faith or they didn't have faith. That's not how Hebrews typically um, did that. They demonstrated that. They showed that that was true by um, demonstrating the actions that flowed from such faith or unbelief. And indeed, the author here to the Hebrews in the New Testament has already shown us that. This is the first time we see this here. This is something He commonly does. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, He was talking about the wilderness generation of the Israelites. And in particular, He was talking about their unbelief, their hardness of hearts. Um, but He didn't do it in such a way of just discussing that directly. He showed us that that was the case, that's how these Israelites were, by showing their actions, their stubbornness, their refusal to do what God commanded. And so here, I'm turning it to the positive side of believing faith with regard to Noah, the author to the Hebrews here does not say directly um, from the Genesis text where it says he had faith, but rather says it because of what Noah did. He built the ark as God had commanded. He did what we was told to do. That is true faith. And so, in Noah's preparation of the ark, here we read, resulted in the deliverance of his household, as God had said would be for all of those, though sadly and tragically, it was but eight individual men and women of all that perished on the outside. So, his act of faith in building the ark as God commanded resulted in his deliverance, the deliverance of his immediate household that went into the ark. But notice also, it was the condemnation. Noah condemned the world through that same faith. If those who were there would not heed the word, would not heed the warning, would not come into the ark as they would not, then they perished. And so, these two things, the saving of his household and the condemnation of the rest of the world, these connected points help us to understand how the author here views what we call the 
revelation of God, the redemptive, the saving revelation of God that is progressively unfolded in the Old Testament. Um, in particular, it raises two things here that we need to give some thought to for a few minutes. And that, are, uh, that is the issue of typology and the issue of progressive revelation. Now, we may be reviewing for some this morning. Maybe you're hearing these terms for the first time and you're going to learn some theology. Um, let me appeal to you not to turn off, not to say for me to start seeing glazed eyes because these are long words and complicated terms. Um, let's deal with them one by one. First of all, typology. That has to do with people and things, and indeed sometimes patterns in the Old Testament, which were created to serve as pointers to Jesus Christ. We sometimes call them foreshadows of Jesus Christ, of who He is and what He would come to do. That's what typology means. Um, let's give an example. Adam is one clear example of an Old Testament person who is a type of Christ. Well, how is he a type of Christ? Well, Adam was the head of the human race. He was the representative of the human race. As it went with Adam, it went with all of his descendants. When Adam fell into sin, then all mankind in him fell into sin. So, where is the connection with Christ then? How is He a type of Christ? How does He point to Christ? Well, because Jesus is the head of a new humanity, a new creation of human beings. He represents believers. And whereas all men in Adam fell into sin, all believers in Christ who united to Him by faith are resurrected and redeemed in Jesus Christ. You see how not everything that Adam is and was and did um, is the connection, but these things in particular. Now, when Hebrews mentions that Noah's acts of faith resulted in the salvation of his house, we read that carefully then we ought to hear, brothers and sisters, this morning an echo with what Jesus Christ came to do on behalf of His people. What are His people often called? The household of faith. You see the echo? You see the shadow to the reality? Noah acts as God commands him, a particular time, a particular space in this physical world to save a household, small though it was. But it's a pointer to one much greater than Noah, who himself is that saving space to prevent the flood judgments that actually will be fire judgment at the last great day on behalf of his house, the household of the great Son of God. That's how Noah is a type of Christ. 
One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, it was the Son, that is Jesus Christ, who demonstrated sacrificial faithfulness to the one who appointed Him as apostle and high priest of His people, thereby guaranteeing our hope as believers for salvation from sin and judgment. Of course, that commentator there is reflecting upon texts we've already looked at in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3 verses 1 through 6 and chapter 9, 26 through 28. So, Noah is presented by the author here as a type of Christ, appointed to Christ, who was the Savior of God's household, even as Noah was the Savior in God's hands as instrument of His own household. Now, similarly, the deliverance of God's people in Noah's day spelt the destruction of the unbelieving world in divine wrath. That's what happened in time and space in the ancient world in Noah's day. If you would not believe the warning judgment of God and come into the ark, you perished, and they did. Reflecting upon that very sobering truth, John Calvin writes this. He says, quote, The fact that Noah was taken up so long in building the ark removes all excuse from the wicked, and the event which followed proved that the destruction of the world was just, end quote. There was an extensive period of time in which Noah built the ark. It was not done in a day or a week. It was testimony over and over again to the unbelieving world that God had said the flood judgment was coming. And Calvin, I think, very rightly says the very fact that it took so long for that ark to be built was a damning indictment of the unbelieving world. That day after day after day after day, this was physically before their eyes of God's warning of His judgment. It was clear. It was timely. Here it is. So to leave the people without excuse. We pause there for a moment to say those same principles are with us today in the sense that Christ, the great given Savior of sinners, is either to the salvation of those who will believe or it is to the great condemnation of those who refuse. God in His mercy, whoever you are here this morning, has maintained your life, sustained you to give you further opportunity to believe. He's not put a physical ark in front of your eyes, but He has presented to you one greater, who is that great spiritual ark of salvation for all who will believe. And so the question is this morning, will you come into the ark of Christ and be saved from the great judgment that is coming on that last day? Or will you sadly, tragically, be like those of old who refuse? But as the Word of God is very clear, it will lead to your eternal destruction if you will not come to Jesus Christ. So much for typology, Noah, a type of Christ. Now, thinking of Noah in this way works within a broader principle of how we understand the Old Testament Scriptures 
and what we call the progressive unfolding of God's revelation. Again, I appeal to you not to switch off as we talk about this, um, to think this is all just complicated, too many long words, what's this got to do with me? Um, we have sought as uh, a church, a true church of the Lord Jesus, to teach even our children this basic principle. Uh, many years ago, we had a particular um, uh, theme in our children's Sunday school called the story of redemption. I trust uh, those probably are now in teenage years, the last time we uh, did that, um, but I trust you remember something about that. And the whole point of that was to emphasize even to our young children that when you read the Scriptures, it's not just an individual story here and an individual story there that might be very interesting and engaging. Here's a story about Adam and Eve in the garden. Here's a story about Cain and Abel. Here is a story very um, perhaps condensed and perhaps with many questions about it that we have about Enoch. Here's a story about Noah and the great flood judgment and so on and so on. It is not that. Ultimately, what it is, is God's great story from, of redemption from beginning to end, from the book of Genesis to the book of the Revelation. And with some care and with some commitment, um, even our young children can grasp that. And then as they grow and the Lord grants a, uh, an increase in their uh, mental capacities and understandings, we can fill in some more and more of the details. Um, but we should at least be able to grasp that. Um, that's why this is very practical this morning. It's very important and very practical. Um, let me put it like this. No matter however young or old we may be, you will never read the Bible properly if you do not understand this principle. It's as simple as that. It does not so much matter that you use the technical theological term. Um, it's good for you to know it, because in case you're reading through the books and it comes up, you say, well, I, okay, I know what that means. Don't have to go and look it up all the time. Um, and it's useful sometimes as we talk with one another as Christians. It's a, it's a shorthand way. We do it all the time in our lives, right? If you're uh, wanting to talk about a particular subject, we all have technical terms, right? Um, as many of you know, I spent 20 years in finance and business before I came to the, finance, came to the ministry. And uh, in finance and in business, there's lots of technical terms that we use that we can communicate in a quick and efficient way. You don't have to go back and redefine every, every time when you're wanting to speak about something. Um, sometimes when we come to the Christian faith and think about the Bible, that principle just seems to get jettisoned as if it's something totally unbiblical, just to have simple terms that define things. Well, this is one such term. Now, whether you want to use the full term, which is organic development of redemptive revelation, um, we don't use it to try to look smart or clever, um, but it just encapsulates everything it is. It's not so much important whether you want to or not. What is important that you understand what it means because it's very relevant here, and it's relevant every time you read the Bible. 
What do we mean by this? Well, what we mean by that is that the unfolding, the progressive, redemptive revelation of God in the Bible resembles what we call an organic process. Now, again, whether you want to use the term or not is not so much important. We all know what that is. If you've ever planted a seed and got eventually a plant or a tree and fruit from it, you understand what an organic process is. If you've ever planted an acorn, children, and if you live long enough to see the oak tree come from it, then you understand what an organic process is, even though you may say, I have no idea what that word means. It means that whatever is in that acorn from the beginning is everything that needs to be there to get the oak tree and more acorns, the fruit, to get more trees down the road. You don't plant an acorn and get something else. That's what we mean here by saying the revelation of God is organic. Now, why is that important? Well, because then what we are seeing as God's redemptive revelation is unfolded in the Old Testament is that the perfect seed from the very beginning when God promised to save His people, Genesis chapter 3, He would send the seed of the woman, He says. That's the embryonic seed promise of God to save His people. And as that is progressively unfolded through the Old Testament and into the New Testament with the coming of Christ, it's not something different when it comes to the time of Noah from Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's not something different when it comes to the time of Abraham and something different when it comes to the time of Moses and to David and so on. It is essentially, organically, the one promise of God, but progressively unfolded with greater and greater detail showing how and who and all of those things concerning God's fulfillment. Gerhardus Voss, great theologian, Dutch theologian, puts it like this, perhaps better than I have just, but he says this. So dispensation grows out of dispensation, and the newest is but the fully expanded flower of the oldest. Another commentator puts it like this. He says, redemptive history moves through stages. Each one is not merely a return to a former state of affairs, but rather incorporating what has preceded. Each stage moves on to a higher stage, one never seen or realized before, until the final stage is attained." End quote. Back to Voss, who I think puts it best of all, because you might say, well, what's the point of all of this? That's all very interesting, Pastor, for those who like theology and all of that stuff. But what's the practical thing here? Let me cite Voss to you again. Quote, since the basic needs of man are fundamentally the same, it follows that the heart of divine truth, that by which men live, not practical enough for us, must have been present from the outset, and that each subsequent increase consisted in the unfolding of what was germinally seed form 
contained in the very beginning of the revelation. Hence, the gospel of paradise in the garden is such a germ, a seed, in which the gospel of Paul is potentially present. And the gospel of Abraham, the gospel of Moses, the gospel of David, the gospel of Isaiah, the gospel of Jeremiah. They are all expansions of this original message of salvation, each pointing forward to the next stage of growth and bringing that gospel one step nearer to its full realization, end quote. Now, most of us, perhaps from a blank sheet of paper, could not have written that so succinctly and so eloquently, but I trust you get the idea. The gospel of Paul is not different from the gospel of any of the Old Testament saints. It is one and the same truth that has been progressively unfolded through the Scriptures. It's that principle that the author here, coming back to Hebrews 11 now, what's this got to do with Hebrews 11? It's that broader principle, again, if you like, long-term, organic development of redemptive revelation, the principle of seed to fruit. It's that principle that the author is thinking about and working with here as he writes about Noah. Indeed, as he writes what he does in verse 7, there's a development here of God's saving purpose, what we call the covenant of grace. The word isn't used here, the term covenant of grace, but the substance is. That's what's here before us. And that's why the author here presents only those elements of the story of Noah. He doesn't give a full rehearsal of what's in uh, Genesis in the chapters of uh, the, the great flood narrative. He presents the particular elements of that that suit his purpose here in dealing with the perseverance faith of Noah such that it might be said to us as a witness. But what is he witnessing to? He's witnessing, witnessing to God's saving purpose, his covenant of grace. Well, you might say, really, Pastor? That, that sounds like a bit of a stretch to me. Well, let's come to the end of verse 7. If you don't believe that that's what's going on here in the mind of the author, this should hopefully convince you. At the end, the author speaks then of Noah becoming an heir of that righteousness that is according to faith. That's how the author to the Hebrews, New Testament author, views Noah from the Old Testament. An heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. That sounds very like New Testament language of another apostle, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul. It's significant because, of course, in the Genesis narrative, Noah is spoken of as a righteous man, Genesis 6-9. He is uh, called uh, one that is righteous before me in this generation, Genesis 7-1. But in what way was Noah righteous? The author here of Hebrews emphasizes that himself, an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, this statement of Noah's righteousness is what shows a vital development in that revelation in redemptive history. Um, yes, in time and space for the 
physical judgment. Noah did what God said. We might call it covenant loyalty. He obeyed his Lord, and he built the ark, and that was a means of physical salvation for his household and physical condemnation to the perishing of the unbelieving world. But that was not a perfect righteousness that would ultimately save Noah from the great consummate judgment of God at the end of time. That which he did in building the ark could never save Noah from the judgment of God at the last great day. And that's why Hebrews 11.7 puts it this way. Yes, takes up that great theme of righteousness for Noah, but stresses that it was not his righteousness ultimately. It was the righteousness of another which he had received by the great gift of faith. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews uh, takes up Noah along with all other uh, true believers in saying that righteousness that is necessary to save a man body and soul in the last great judgment of God is not something that we have in ourselves. But rather it is that which comes through this one to whom Noah points, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who came to save his household. And so Noah's righteousness, standing in Genesis and the physical flood judgment, points to a much greater righteousness, brethren. That greater righteousness that's needed for the deliverance of Christ's household from the coming judgment. Noah was a member of that household. He had his own household in time and space that was saved through the physical ark. But Noah, along with all true believers, Old Testament and New Testament, is part of Christ's household. And that would require a far greater righteousness, a far greater obedience, a far greater penalty payment for the infraction of those who are in that household, that which only Jesus Christ Himself could provide and supply. The Apostle Paul makes that clear, doesn't he, in, Old Testament, in New Testament language, Galatians 5.5. 5, he says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And so here the last phrase in Hebrews 11.7 7, shows that this broad Old Testament stream of redemptive revelation, organic in nature, it's never different, it's the same thing, progressively unfolded reveals here in outline all those things of which many of us are familiar when we talk about the covenant of grace, God's great saving purpose, which comes to fulfillment, not in Noah, but in Jesus Christ, the one to whom Noah imperfectly points, as do many and all of the other Old Testament types in the Old Covenant. That's why Noah acts as a witness to that righteousness of the things not yet seen, of the world to come. And it comes by faith and by faith alone. And so we too as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, if you too have that gift of faith in Jesus Christ, 
then you too share in that great inheritance, in the fulfillment of the great promise of salvation. And that's what the author of Hebrews has said over and over and over again, hasn't he, as we've gone through that. Well, that brings us thirdly and very briefly to our last point, an heir of righteousness. Righteousness came to Noah by means of what? His works? His deserving? Did not, did it? It came by means of inheritance. He's an heir of righteousness. And so it was by faith that Noah was God's child and therefore destined to inherit, as we are familiar in this world of inheritance of children from father. That's what we understand, don't we, by inheritance. Maybe you've been the beneficiary of an inheritance. What does that mean? Well, inheritance means that the source of the gift was not ours, first and foremost. But it belonged to the one who granted it to us. We were beneficiary. They were the one who were benefactor, gave the inheritance to us. That's how the righteousness of Christ comes to people like us, sinners. It can never come by our deserving. It's not ours by right. It comes as an inheritance from God to His blood-bought children. Notice the inheritance is established by God, by promise, by His fixed law and procedure. What does Paul say? Romans 4.16, he says that our inheritance depends on what? Faith, he says, in order that the promise may rest on grace. It's a gift, and it can't be anything else. But as we close this morning, that's what makes this inheritance of the righteousness of faith so secure. Um, you may have been disappointed with regard to an inheritance this wor- in this world. Um, maybe you were initially in a will, and then you weren't for whatever reason, by the will of the benefactor. Um, Or maybe you receive the inheritance, but as Peter says, it's subject to moth and rust and corruption, and uh, it's no longer worth the value that it was when you received it, because like all things in this world, they are subject to such things. The great inheritance of righteousness is not like that and will never be. When we receive righteousness and inheritance by the open hand of faith, it is afterward possessed as a right. Not an inherent right we had, but by the right that God confers on us and will never renege on. Let me put it this way, and I hope this can capture your imagination this morning. Child of God, the Lord will never, do I need to say it again? Never write you out of His will. Isn't that great? He'll never write you out of His will. He'll never say, you know what? I've had a better idea, and I'd rather give it to them instead. You know, what are we at best? Profitless servants, aren't we? At best. But God, for the love of His Son, because of the great accomplishment of the faithful servant, we will never never, never be written out of His will. It's based upon God's sovereign will. John 1 verse 12 
tells us this, to all who did receive Him, that's you, Christian, this morning, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John tells us. And all that being true, how much more secure then is this righteousness that comes by faith than any we might try and win or accomplish for ourselves. It's the gift of God to all who would believe. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. Yes, we have the privilege of a fuller understanding, a greater light, but the substance is no different. That's why the writer to the Hebrew says, now faith is, isn't it? The substance, he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good testament, Old Testament sins, and so do we. You have God's Word this morning, Christian, concerning these things. Noah testifies to you of that. The question is, do you receive that testimony? We finish these sermons, and I do so very briefly now, the same way. Do you believe this? For those who are Christians, I trust you do, and glory in the great inheritance which is yours, yet unseen with physical eyes, but certain, as Peter says, kept in heaven for you as you are kept for it. But if you're an unbeliever this morning, you reject again another witness. Might I put this reverently to you? How many witnesses does God have to bring to you for you not to continue in unbelief? The tragedy is that even when God sent His greatest witness, His greatest prophet, Jesus Christ Himself, there were those who yet still would not believe. And what was the Lord's word? Not in a word of glee, not in a word of rubbing his hands and saying, well, well, aha. But he says, you will perish in your sins. If you will reject ultimately the only one that God has supplied to save sinners like you, you will perish in your sins. Why would you perish this morning when God has provided a great Savior? Why would you reject the greatest inheritance in the world for the mere baubles and toys of an inheritance in this world? The poorest saint in this world is the richest of saints in Christ. And God grants that to each and every one who will trust in Him. May He grant each one of us to believe in the one that He has sent. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that You might grant each and every one of us to turn in believing faith to the one that You have sent, Jesus Christ the Lord, even the one to whom Noah points, even with His testimony before us this morning. 
We are thankful for what is said of Him here in the book of Hebrews as He points to Christ. But Lord, we ask that each one might run to that ark, which is not but a physical construction of this time and place, but rather, O Lord, which is the great salvation in Jesus Christ the Lord. Turn all hearts to Yourself, we pray, before that great day overcomes and overtakes any, and they are found shut outside. Hear us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.